Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Tom Withers and this week at law school, I ate my own body weight in mashed potatoes and turkey, spent some excellent time with family, and I played an upright bass in property class. Also this week, I interviewed the very cool Christina Chan and learned about some of her very unique perspectives. I also talk a little bit about the awkward history of animal law and how it has developed over time. If this sounds like something you are interested in, then stay tuned for this week at law school. All right, so we're back. Um, This episode is coming out a little bit late because of Thanksgiving break. Um, So I apologize for that. But, you know, it was really great to be able to get out of the law school for a little while, stop thinking about it for a little while and spend some time with my family. Um, My in-laws came up from California this year to spend Thanksgiving with us here in Provo. And that was just a ton of fun. It's actually the first time ever in seven years of marriage that my wife and I spent a major holiday on our own home turf. Um, And I really appreciate my in-laws going out of their way and driving up from sunny California to spend a very uh, snowy Thanksgiving with us here. It was kind of a blizzard. Um, My my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, they ended up hiking up the Y Y Mountain there. Um, And they hiked for the view, but they couldn't see even to the bottom of the Y once they got up there. The the snow was starting to fall. And so it made for... Probably a pretty treacherous journey down the mountain, but you know they they survived and we made it to the uh, the dinner. So, um, like I said, I ended up eating pretty close to my own body weight in mashed potatoes, turkey stuffing, ham, sweet potatoes, green beans, squash, carrots, and like a million pie. Um, <laughs> and you know, I was just thinking, uh, every year it becomes harder and harder for me to eat my own body weight. And that's probably a result of me trying to eat my own body weight. Oh, ooh, that's profound. Um, So the more you eat, the bigger you get, and the harder it is to eat your own body weight in food. It's like, ooh, that's like a cycle of some kind. Uh, Yeah. You know, it's obviously impossible to do it in one sitting, but I do wonder how long it would take to eat your own body weight and food. And would smaller people have an advantage in that situation or would bigger people, right? Because smaller people, they weigh less, it's less food to eat, but they're also smaller. So presumably they can't eat as much. Or would like a big fat guy like me have the advantage because I can eat a ton at a time. It's more food to eat. You know what? I'm betting, I've known some small people that have like ridiculous appetites. I'll bet they have the advantage in that. But you know what? I think I might just have to quit law school and and go out and find the answer to this burning question, like, you know, for science. People have to know. They have to know what is the fastest that a person can eat their own body weight in food. And in many ways, I think that that's the final frontier of human knowledge. It's like the last dark spot in the corner of our collective understanding. And quite frankly, I believe that I have the power to illuminate it. Um, and so without further ritual or ceremony, I am retiring from law school and going off to pursue a career in science, finding out how much time it takes for a person to eat their own body weight in food. That's it. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Um, okay. 
sorry, I got to snap out of it. If you can't tell, uh, I'm starting to get a little bit uncomfortable here at the law school. Memo three is finished. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm spitting. Memo three. Ugh. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, anyways, I honestly have no idea how I did on that paper. It could either be the best paper that the professor has ever read, or it could be absolute trash. And she will come to my house and physically smite me upon the face for making her waste her time on it. Um, I actually, I have no idea. And that's kind of unnerving for me. So most likely it's just fine. It'll probably fall somewhere in like the middle of the curve or whatever. I think, I hope, well, no, no, stop it. I hope it's the best paper in the class. I think it's probably the middle of the pack. And I fear <laughs> that it's going to be like the worst paper in the class. So we'll find out. Uh, I'll find out soon enough. Too soon, really. But that's one thing I, I've mentioned it before. I know it's super tricky about law school. It's you, you usually have no real idea how you're doing in a class, particularly in like relative to your classmates. It's actually it's actually really disconcerting. But anyways, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. As of this recording, which, as I said, is coming out a little bit later than usual. I am done with Memo 3 and I am putting it behind me. I will never read it again unless I end up making very bad life choices and then I'll get to revise it forever and ever in the pits of oblivion. So, but on a much lighter note and a slightly perplexing note, um, I ended up playing an upright bass for the first time ever this week, which was fun. Uh, better yet, I got to do it in front of my whole property class without a minute's practice and accompanying some very talented musicians for a little... Uh, spontaneous Christmas Christmas concert that we ended up having. Um, so yeah, I mean, an upright bass plays pretty similarly to an electric bass, and I'm pretty comfortable with an electric bass. Not amazing, but I, I'm fine. Um, except for the fretboard is vertical, and also there isn't a fretboard. It's basically just like a gigantic, heavy violin that you hold on to the top of and like pluck around on. And anyways, I wasn't plucking in the right spot, I guess. And I was a little pitchy in my note selection at times. Again, no frets. So you got to kind of like feel it. Um, and I'm not, I'm not used to that. I'm used to pushing the button and the sound comes out. Um, but yeah, it, and pff, the feedback I got was generally pretty good. It was a ton of fun, and I found out that some of my classmates are crazy talented and can play and sing very well. So that that was actually really fun. That's something that I honestly didn't expect about law school, like an impromptu full Christmas concert at the end of the semester with like a full band and PA equipment and everything. It was it was very cool. Um, and, you know, things like that really help to take your mind off of the impending doom of final exams. And man, it is impending. Uh, I'm going to talk about that probably in next week's episode. Um, but yeah, for now, let's go ahead and get to our interview. So for this week, I interviewed Christina Chan. Um, she's very nice and very cool. She is one of the kindest people in our class, and she's also very clever and meticulous, and she's a great student. Um, it was a lot of fun interviewing her, and I am sure that her perspectives will be very valuable to you. Here is Christina. 
So I'm here with Christina, uh, Christina Chan. Christina is from Houston, Texas. She did her undergrad at Texas A&M. She's a big Aggies fan. And that's the Aggies that everyone actually cares about, not the Utah State Aggies. (laughs) Sorry, uh, America. (laughs) Um, She was a business management major. Christina was adopted from China. Her father is an immigrant from Taiwan and her mother is from Utah. She has an older sister also adopted from China and a younger brother and a younger sister who were not adopted. Uh, her dream job originally was to be a chef. She loves to cook, but has somehow wound up here in law school. And so thank you so much for being here, Christina. It's great that you're here. Well, thanks for having me. This is exciting. Awesome. Well, um, I'll ask you kind of the standard question that I usually start off with, and that's, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? Yes. So on that last point, I grew up watching Food Network, and I know that that's kind of like the, I don't know, like that, sorry. You're fine. Not the... I guess the true education that a chef should have, but that's what started it. Uh-huh. And so like while my friends were watching Nickelodeon, I wasn't allowed to watch SpongeBob growing up, mm. but I was allowed to watch like Iron Chef and <laughs> 30 Minutes with Rachel Ray. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I always loved that. And then I got older, got into high school, realized that I needed money to live. And I was dissuaded from following the career okay. path. So chefs can make good money, but yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I always thought that might be like a really stressful job to be a chef. And like, once again, like I chose to go to law school, so it's not like I'm avoiding stress, but like, <laughs> yeah, I love to cook as well. So, um, but I, we should have, we should do one L master chef. Oh my gosh. Let's, I would kill for that. Okay. <laughs> That's the idea. One L master chef. You heard it here first. <laughs> TM trademark <laughs> copyright 2019. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, okay, so so um, originally wanted to be a chef. What brought you to law school? So I was originally an accounting major for about three years, actually, okay. um, and then. I just really did not love my accounting classes and I almost kind of had a spiritual experience and it was strange to have like a spiritual experience related to my career path. But looking back, it was definitely just like a feeling that this was the wrong path for me. And looking back, I can definitely see how it was. Um, But it kind of left me in a place though, my first, second semester of junior year where I was like, okay, well, this thing I've been working at, is not going to work for my life but I don't have any direction of where I should be going. Uh And so um, I knew I wanted to graduate in four years just because of money and, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to graduate in four years. And so I started looking within the business school at what other opportunities there were, what other careers there were that sounded interesting. Um, And all business majors at A&M were required to take an introduction to business law class. And I really love that professor. So I decided to take her again for a labor law class. Not that I'm particularly interested in labor law now, but I just remember loving that class, the way she thought about issues, the way she taught, the way she dissected things. Um, And so that kind of started the interest into law. Um, But I didn't grow up around lawyers. I didn't have Mm -hmm. a good idea what a lawyer was. My impression of lawyers was like from suits or from (laughs) law and order SVU. And I feel like when you just don't see people around you doing that, it didn't seem like a possibility. And so to me, law school didn't seem like a like a real possibility. Right. Um, and so I was like, Oh, I played around with the idea of law school, but I didn't think it was feasible. And mm-hmm. so, um, instead I took a more HR route and, um, like my, I did an internship at state farm that was more cool. compliance focused. Yeah. 
will not say it. it's a great company. Um, just the insurance industry is a little a little more boring than other industries. <laughs> the whole actuary side of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's a great company, and I yeah. loved my time there. Um, and then I think what happened. Oh yeah, and then I got back to school. I was honestly praying about it more. Right. And then I just got the impression that like this path also isn't right for you. I'm just like, I guess it's law school then. And just like a lot of miracles happened. Like a lot of things fell into place that I had never expected for me to get here. And so that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Are you glad that you're here? I'm really glad I'm here. Good. Probably like that happiest and most interested I've been in an academic setting. That is amazing. Yeah. And that's Except for my sociology mind. I'm going to put a plug. Sociology is amazing. Sociology. I was a sociology major. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was. I uh, sick. yeah, I really enjoyed it. BYU Idaho. Yeah, they had a really, really cool sociology program up there. The professors yeah. are like really punch above their weight. I feel like. I thought so. it'd be so interesting to study sociology within the context of the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, it was. It was interesting. Most of the classes didn't really focus on that too much. Um, but my capstone project, I actually did a research project for the church. Um, yeah. I'm actually not supposed to talk about it though. Okay, so sorry. no, no, <laughs> that, that, that's my fault. Um, I, I cut it out of the cut, recording. Cut, no, we're fine. I don't think I crossed the line there. Um, but yeah, that, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, and so, yeah, I will also put in the plug for sociology there. Uh, cool. Cool. So you like it here. You're enjoying it. Um, kind of the big elephant in the room right now for everybody mm-hmm. is memo three. Yes. Are you surviving? <laughs> How are you coping with memo three? You know, I, I'm doing okay. I think I had written my entire memo when I learned that I had defined my controversy the wrong way. And then uh, I had to go back and quote unquote reshift things, AKA rewrite all of my, rewrite the entire <laughs> I felt so, so bad when that happened. <laughs> But, you know, it was a good learning experience. Mm-hmm. Got lots of practice writing. Um, and so this weekend is all about me and my computer and the blue book. So all right. Fun weekend. Me too. Uh, so was your scope originally too wide or too narrow? Too narrow. Too so narrow. I had okay. to find it as um, what was it, Palmer's comments within the radio interview. Oh. Because I guess how I was looking at it is that this controversy wouldn't have existed unless he had somehow like put forth his yeah. viewpoints and ideas. So I guess it could also have been defined as his business mission, but that's the thing. And I don't want to get like too technical on this for oh, people yeah, who are not listening, but like, I, well, we can say, but like, <laughs> like with the wall bomb court, that's where they did like the scoping, like the scale for the scope. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there wasn't good direction on that, on how to do it. And so, yeah, my scale originally was way wide. It was like as broad as it gets. Like, and then I was like, well, probably should narrow it down to at least geographical. <laughs> and so I actually ended up by like pure luck being in like kind of the right place there. Oh, that's awesome. But well, it was it was basically pure luck. I was like, ah, I'm having a hard time writing about it at this scale. So I'm going to try and narrow it a little bit. But then I was also super tempted to do exactly what you did and say like the controversy has something to do with him. No, it actually doesn't. Turns out. So I don't know. We don't have to talk about memo three anymore. I'm starting to get heart palpitations. I know. I was like, this is less fun now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask, are you, are you feel like you got it? You're, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely interesting. So 
legal research and writing is actually probably my favorite class though. Really? Like I love the other class. I <laughs> love strong word. I love my other professors. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but I just really have enjoyed this semester of legal research and writing. Mm-hmm. I think just because it's more methodical, it's more formulaic. Yeah. And then I also feel like it's just more practical. Like I could see myself using all these oh, yeah, skills for sure. in the summer. For sure. And I don't know, I just like like knowing that I'm going to be yeah. fine. Nobody's going to ask us for our advice on contracts. Yeah. Over like, like a 1L? Yeah. Hey, 1L, get over here and read this <laughs> corporate merger contract. <laughs> Tell me what you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have a favorite class besides the legal research and writing, or is that just like stand out your favorite class? Um, stand out, probably my favorite class. I also a, just awesome. love research. You're the first person that I've talked to that has said that that's your, they're your favorite class. Uh, and it's towards most of the time. Yeah, most of the time towards, but actually Matt, last week he said property. And so, you know, different strokes, <laughs> different strokes for different folks there. So that's good. Yeah. And legal writing is probably the best class to have be your favorite class. Cause like you said, it's the most useful. Yeah. So, um, and plus just shout out to professor Bramble, and professor Nevers, but they are excellent. They really are. Professors. Yeah. Yeah, they so. Professor Bramble pushes us hard, yeah. um, but it has been really good. She's been the best writing instructor I think I've had my entire life. Yeah, so. yeah. Props to her. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> she's like she's gonna listen. She's to a big podcast. listener. She's a big listener to the show. Actually, I get I get a lot of I get a lot of uh, feedback from <laughs> Professor Bramble. It's usually in all caps and red, but it's. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, your grammar was bad here, Tom. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you actually are listening to this, Professor Ramble, uh, I love you and I'm kidding. So, um, but yeah, so law school, good overall. Yeah. Two um, thumbs up. Yeah. What about Provo? That one's a little bit, a little, but a bit different. Okay. I guess I'll just speak freely. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I grew up in Houston, Texas. Right. And it's got to be, well, I've been to Houston. It's yeah, very different. Exactly. So. And so, for those of y'all who don't know, Houston's probably mm-hmm. one of the most diverse cities in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, we There's a huge immigrant population there, especially from Southeast Asia, Southeast right. Asia. Um, and so, I kind of had, so growing up, I was in a very diverse environment and then going to texas a&m university was great and there was some diversity but you can imagine a conservative public school in texas mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to be the same as houston right um but i i still had a great time there i found my niche i think what helped is that like as a member of the church i was still a minority but i was able to connect with a lot of people who were Christian, but of different Christian denominations. Right. And that felt really diverse. Like I was going to Bible studies and like the yeah. group of women, we had Catholics and Bible Christians and Methodists. And we were able just to like share different ideas about how we viewed Jesus and viewed mm-hmm. the scriptures. And that was really cool. But being here, it's just so homogeneous in that I belong to the religion now. And so it's great to have conversations about church in random settings. Right. At the same time, I feel like, I don't know. I don't know how to say this, but maybe like not as much of a willingness to disagree about ideas because you don't want to somehow end up implying that the church is wrong. Oh, even when gotcha. sometimes that, you know, maybe the church is wrong on this. Yeah, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you should put out that shit. <laughs> You're fine. You're fine. Um, and so there's that. And then there is also like just in terms of like other factors of like how I am a minority. And so in terms of just like cultural upbringing and then race and ethnicity, it, it's been 
a little bit difficult sometimes because and I think so for those of you who don't know, I don't know if you talked about this on your last podcast, but mm-hmm. our like the Dean of Career Services talked to us a bit last week about just being more aware of how our actions are impacting um right. minorities. Um and I would just add to that that yeah, I haven't talked about it yet. It was, okay. it was this week. So, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a few days ago. This is a law school that's your brain. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, but for me, I would just add to that because she was, re- it seemed like she was at least referencing specific incidences where maybe people did have like a motive or people right. did have like some element of malice kind of yeah. in there. Yep. Um, but I think honestly, like their bigger problem, not just at law school, but maybe BYU, maybe Provo, maybe <coughs> a lot of times too in America is just this idea of implicit bias of the idea of um, like everyone, even my people who identify as minorities have some sort of bias and we have you can't to, escape exactly, bias. Right? We have to recognize that sometimes we're coming from a good place or coming from like an innocent place, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like the idea of disparate impact, right? But the effect of our actions don't like marginalize someone or affect right. someone negatively, but it's hard to call out those situations without having people become defensive. Oh yeah. Because, because like one of the worst things you can be called now is a exactly. racist. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting. We actually had a forum on Wednesday where we had um, a lawyer from Arizona come and talk about, the idea of a uh-huh. bias. And he quoted some study where he was saying that now in America, um, calling um, a white person a racist is of the same degree of offensiveness as calling a black person the N-word. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how that study happened. Or, uh, I, don't know, like, I don't know how you measure that, but it was yeah. an interesting um, yeah. observation, I think, of how society is right now. And so I think if we're able to peel back and be able to talk about the ways that maybe our actions are unintended have these consequences, these negative consequences, mm-hmm. detrimental consequences on people who aren't at the same playing field as the majority. Right. That's only way we can improve. But right now we're just kind of stuck in this weird, like, oh, I don't want to offend the majority. Yeah. Because if you offend the majority, then nothing's going to change. Because we need the permission of the majority to enact changes most of the time. That's kind of the that's kind of the interesting and I find very tricky. Um aspect of this and this is a this is obviously kind of a, a more serious topic than than i usually talk about on the show but one of the things that i because obviously i want for everyone to feel included and like they belong and everything like that one of the trickiest things about it is like you said it has to be kind of um the like the majority has to change in order to really affect like a permanent change um but then you get this situation where like you said like a minority person doesn't feel comfortable you know saying hey this is a problem and we need we need to fix it and then also you get people who are in the majority who's who um you know, the worst thing they can be called is a racist. And so you end up having them also be like very, very nervous and very uncomfortable. And that's like the opposite effect that we want to have in this situation. We want to make sure that everyone like feels comfortable about being open and talking about these things because you know, the only way that they're going to get fixed is if people feel like they can say, okay, yeah, I recognize that your experience is different than mine and that, that maybe, you know, my actions are causing problems that I was not aware of, um, without, without, like you said, that, that, really nasty stigma of being a racist because nobody wants to be yeah. a racist in this day and age. I, I mean, not, I want to say nobody because <laughs> there are some like straight up bad people. I feel like but, it's safe to say that no one at BYU wants to be your I hope not. Yeah. I hope <laughs> not. But yeah, most people don't want to be a racist. And so when you find out that you are like, even like accidentally or, that, like, or something like, that, yeah, 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 that you said something, threat, right. So. <laughs> exactly. That can be like really 
devastating. Like you said, yeah. people will shut down when they hear that. So what's, what do you think about that? What do you, what's your kind of take on the solution for that? Cause it's, it seems really difficult to me. Yeah. You know, that's a great question. That's, I actually spend a lot of time thinking about this and I don't have an answer. I can just like kind of tell you my thoughts that are kind of surrounding what I think might lead to right. some conclusion, but it's all going to be kind of a hot mess. So sorry, y'all. But <laughs> I think where, where I start is I read this fantastic book um, the other day called White Fragility. Um, and it was too well had recommended it to me and Dean Smith had actually recommended it to her. Okay. And it's um, just like a look on white privilege among white liberals in America, because she's kind of, it's this woman whose job is she's a diversity coach. So she just goes around to all these corporations who want to increase their diversity. Right. And it's her job to, it's kind of like, have you seen the, the episode of the office called diversity day? Yes. It's, it's basically okay. that guy, um, but like <laughs> not as offensive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the office but not horrifying yeah exactly um and so she just has a lot of these interesting social theories about race and the role white privilege plays in this discussion Uh based on just her work experience so i definitely recommend everyone just even like skim through it and there's this one section of the book that i found really interesting and it's um this idea of that we shouldn't be advocating for colorblindness. I think a lot of times in when you listen to people talk about that's the brag. Diversity, I'm colorblind. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. People yep. say they're like, I color, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Well, she's talking about how that's actually still harming minorities, and then saying that I don't see the experiences that you've had that have been different from mine. I don't see okay. how we've been different and I don't see why we're not on a different playing field. And so I thought that was really interesting. That um, is interesting. And it, so she's talking yeah. about how when we're having these conversations, it has to come from a place of humility and a place of truth where, and it's interesting for me to be talking about this because as a Chinese American, I share a lot of privileges that with that white people have, but I also don't share some of those privileges. And so right. I'm coming from this weird median place yeah so, it's a it's an interesting demographic yeah, the asian americans exactly. is, like my yeah. people like we in at least american history mm-hmm. have not been discriminated against at the level as african-americans have or the level of hispanics have but at the same time we're not in every aspect on the same level as maybe the white majority and so it's a weird i never want to compare my experience to minorities who have suffered more harm and more discrimination right and so it's a ton of difficult to, for me to, I think, talk about this in a uh-huh. personal way that's related to myself, which is like why I like to rely on other people's studies and other people's right. thinking. Um, I lost my train of thought. I'm going to be honest. Uh, yeah, you're, you're fine. So basically the gist of it is that like um, there, it should be rather than trying to focus on like eliminating acknowledgement of like different racial groups or things like that, or like, like, uh, that colorblindness rather than focusing on colorblindness, it should be more focused on like, like a celebration of the differences that are there, but also kind of in a way that is like accepting or. I think that's a good way to put it. What that reminded me? One of my friends, um, she's also from Texas, but she went to this school in Ohio and I can't remember where she learned this, but I always loved her perspective on how things should be. And she was saying that, she went to a very liberal college and she said people up there would just get up in arms 
and talk about white privilege in a way where they want to bring white people down. Uh-huh. And she was saying that what it really should be is a recognition that white people have a level of privilege right. and we should be bringing everyone up to that same level. And so there should be no yeah. tearing down people at all. And I thought that was interesting and helpful. I think that is a good way to look at it. And probably ultimately like going back to what we originally said there, um, you know, if white people are this majority and they have this privilege and I, I've, I've read enough. I've seen enough data at this point. It's, it's, I'm a sociology <laughs> major. It's basically undeniable that there there are certain elements of white privilege um, for white people generally, not for yeah. individual white people necessarily. But because of course your socioeconomic status. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Your socioeconomic status can really offset that. Um, but but as like a general kind of yeah. thing there, um, there there are these differences, and the idea would you know, it would basically would be like we said before, like a, trying to kick back to what we originally were talking about. Um, if the white people do have this privilege and this power, then we need, you kind of need white people on board if you're going to affect real change, right? The majority needs to be on board yeah. with with these kind of, these changes. Well, it's just like women's suffrage. Um, yeah. Like the book we read where women couldn't give suffrage to themselves. They had to appeal to them. Exactly, because they can't vote on it, right? That was the point. And so, <laughs> so it was up for a vote and they were not able to vote. So, yeah. Um, and there, you know, I think women's suffrage is a really great example in history of, of people working hard to, like, bring bring everyone around to the same page and say, Hey, you know, this is a problem. We all need to kind of move in this direction and it'll be more fair and better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. And I like the, I like your friend's perspective there as well, that like we should be trying to elevate everybody. And part of that elevation process, it doesn't come from colorblindness. It comes from a celebration of differences of experience and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I really appreciate that. Like I said, this is a more serious <laughs> topic. Than, yeah. yeah. Um, I enjoy talking about this. Yeah. So this is why I don't have many friends. Just kidding. No. No. Christina is extremely popular here. No. Very well loved. And by the way, she writes like the most um, <laughs> intricate and detailed notes I've ever seen from a student here. I missed a couple of days last week and she sent me her notes and I'm like, oh man, Christina's notes are way more comprehensive than mine are. So um, yeah, we are really close to out of time, but okay. maybe... Um, to lighten it up at the end. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. This this was really good. Um, I might see if we can uh, have you back on at some later time. Maybe we'll do a more formal kind of discussion about this at some other time because it is really interesting. It's really important, and I know that a lot of people care about it. And you know, with with what happened this week, um, I'd really like to be a part of kind of a solution if well, there can be one found just um, shout out right now so byu law did hire director of diversity and inclusion and her name is barbara melendez i actually met her for the first time today she is just one of the most fabulous loving women i've ever met and so people who are really interested in becoming engaged in this and being an advocate for this i just recommend going to her office she has a tiny little office in the lobby um she said that right now she's still I'm at a firm, so she's balancing her two jobs. Right. In January, she'll be here full time. So, That's awesome. That's um, really yeah. great. And then Dean Smith announced that they're having a diversity and inclusion just initiative. Yet to see what that entails, but yeah, but hopefully yeah. good. Um, exactly. So yeah, just for anyone who's listening, um, <laughs> BYU is great. But yeah. and get involved with those yeah. things, right? We want to make sure that because part of what's special about BYU, I think, um, is that 
it's like they really do focus on us like loving each other Mm -hmm. and looking out for each other and you know if you believe in that mission and if you uh, i don't want to isolate people who aren't members of the church but if you are a member of the church then you have an obligation to do the right thing in this case it's a moral and as well as religious obligation so i had some mission leader that was like once you're once you come out of the water like you right you have a life sentence (laughs) yeah that's right that's right (laughs) awesome well thank you so much christina it's been really really great having you on and thank you so much for your perspectives i appreciate that oh no thanks for being willing to talk about them anytime okay All right. So we are back. Um, I apologize for rushing Christina at the end there. If it sounded a little bit rushed, I actually had a meeting to get to right after that interview and it went a little bit over time. And so I ended up being a little bit late, but, um, I really appreciated talking to Christina. Um, I think her perspectives and insights were really, really awesome. She's really, um, she's really a great classmate. Um, and I hope you guys enjoyed that. So, Anyways, for the rest of the time, I thought I'd talk to you guys a little bit about one of the interesting uh, legal rabbit holes that I recently fell down into. And once again, this comes with like the standard caveat that I am a first semester law student and not a legal scholar of any sort. So you're going to get like a very simplified and probably at least partially inaccurate rundown of the law here, but it is fun. So here we go anyways. So animal law, it probably isn't something that you think about all the time, but it was a pretty common issue back, especially in like ye old England and during like the early years of the United States where they were still developing, you know, a lot of what is the common law. Um, And so, so I guess first of all, uh, let's start off with wild animals. So a landowner is not generally responsible for injuries caused by a wild animal on their property. The exception is if they've like captured that wild animal and they're keeping it there on purpose. And the other big and, you know, somewhat crazy exception is like if they introduce a wild animal onto the property, like a tiger or something that's not indigenous to the area, then obviously that's their bad if somebody gets hurt. And this seems pretty straightforward when you're talking about wild animals, like you you can break it down. You know, if a bear sneaks onto your property and hurts someone, that's not your fault. Uh, If you keep the bear in a pen on your property and it hurts someone, that seems like pretty much your fault. And if you live in the suburbs and you bring a wild bear to your property and then release it back into the wild from your property, that is pretty obviously your fault. So no issues there. The tricky thing comes when you start talking about domesticated animals. And there was talk initially of like using trespass law to, for like animals that trespass on people's property. But that becomes pretty problematic when courts try to like use the standards of trespass on animals. And that's mostly because the main element, one of the main elements of trespass is intent. And so you have to find a way to argue that like a goat intentionally entered a person's property without their permission and then did some harm. Um, It's tough to prove that a goat does anything with you know, malice aforethought or whatever. So, so courts, you know, dispose of that idea pretty early on. There's also like nuisance law, but it 
also kind of suffers from poor fit when applied to animals in some situations. There was like, they were, they were talking about like animal intrusion, but like the courts didn't really like that for some reason. And most of them haven't picked it up. And so anyways, they they finally landed on a concept of like strict liability. So they decided that an owner is strictly liability, oh, strictly liable for damage caused by their animals if they own the animals and the animals get out and do some damage to their neighbor's property or whatever. Um, that makes sense. Kind of, I guess. Oh, wait, but they exempted dogs and cats for that rule because dogs and cats can do whatever they want. It's really hard to keep a cat on your property behind a fence and dogs, too, can be a little bit tricky. But, oh, wait, you know, if a dog eats someone's chickens and digs up their garden, then shouldn't they be liable? That complicates things. Nuisance, maybe. Who knows? Um, it was really tough for courts to handle it. But fortunately, most of the like state legislatures have written, you know, dog at large statutes and things like that. They picked up the slack and they kind of let nervous judges off of the hook a little bit, which is fortunate because one of the things one of the things about the common law is that judges aren't supposed to just solve problems even if there's like a pretty easy solution, they're not supposed to just be like, aha, I think we should do this and then do it. Um, not, not in a common law situation really, because they're supposed to look and say what's been done before and do something close to, or exactly the same as that. And if they are going to change some things then they have to say, okay, well, this doesn't apply for these reasons, but it's hard to just like make a new rule out of whole cloth. And so they kind of punted to the legislature and rightly so, you know, if you're, if you're a fan of like checks and balances and things like that, that's definitely an arena where the legislature is supposed to say, okay, you know, this is what we're going to do. We'll make a statute that handles this specific thing. And then judges can interpret the statute and they can say, aha, well, the legislature says this. And so we're just going to go with this and the end. And that, that, you know, that that's worked pretty well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the state of you know what we do with dogs and things like that cats that that do damage to people's property <clears throat> another interesting thing is that in america we started out with like this fencing out approach um which means that if you don't want cows to get into your cabbage patch then you should build a fence around your property to keep them out after a while that felt a little bit silly and so we switched to a fencing in approach which means that if you don't want to be sued for your cows destroying someone's cabbage patch then you'd better fence them in uh, this made more sense in the long run, and we're still pretty much there now with a few minor alterations. Um, it gets tricky when you start to ask about like what a wild animal is, because you know in India, elephants are pretty well domesticated. So if you move that same elephant to America, could you say that it was a domesticated animal, or would it be seen as a wild animal as far as like uh, application of like the statutes? Uh, same thing for like camels. Um, you know, animals that are domesticated elsewhere, but, you know, we, we really wouldn't consider them popularly as domesticated animals here. It's hard to know where to apply the law there. Circuses make it pretty tricky sometimes. Um, pretty much they've decided that like, <laughs> like predatory animals like lions and tigers and bears and things like that, they are, they are always wild animals. That's, uh, that's a thing. Um, yeah. And then, also beehives, right? What do you do with beehives? Um, they're obviously not very, you can't train a beehive as far as I know anyways, to do anything other than just be bees. But 
anyways, they've decided that courts have decided that bees, beehives are domesticated animals. And so they use that liability standard there, um, even though, you know, bees are like insects that do whatever the crap they want and go wherever they want. So I don't know. It's complicated. That's why it's interesting to me. And I'm getting a lot of this from my textbook. I'm also getting like a chunk of it from Wikipedia. So I don't know how reliable all of it is in combination, but anyways, so, Oh, and there's this one case. It was from the textbook where a lady kept like a flock of extremely vicious geese in, on her property and they like attacked a police officer. And then this one lady came to visit her and she's like, ah, your geese are attacking me. And she said, oh, that's fine. Just take this bamboo pole and beat them as you try to escape the property. Anyways, while this lady's fleeing and like swinging around wildly at these killer geese with her bamboo pole, she falls and breaks her arm and is like mauled by geese. Um, yeah, that's mostly just an interesting image rather than like a, a legal concept. You know, the owner of the geese was liable, even though even though to her credit, I guess she said she locked up the most vicious goose in the gaggle. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd hate to think what the lady's injuries would have been if like Tyrannosaurus goose had been let out. But like, you know, you have all these dangerous geese on your property and they keep attacking people. So, you know, yeah, it, it's pretty obvious that she should be held liable there. And she was. So anyways, there is so much material here in animal law. And, you know, every state has entire chapters of their legal statutes devoted to the care of animals and liability for things that your animals do and all that stuff. I think Utah's is, I want to say, chapter 76. I don't know. It's been a little while. I looked it up not that long ago, actually, but I wasn't paying that close of attention. But yeah. And so the the legislature has stepped in and has has really taken care of this. But I think it's important and amusing to think back to an era where judges were sitting around kind of scratching their heads, wondering which legal principles to apply to animals who just do whatever they want for whatever reasons they want and without any intent or malice or any of those other things that courts like to look for to determine liability. Um, and so they've basically landed on strict liability. Like if you own these animals, then you're responsible for what they do. Um, that seems really straightforward to us now, but back before courts were really using strict liability, it was really a complicated thing for them to kind of invent. And so they were trying to like talk about trespass and all these things that just did not fit at all. So one of the cool and interesting and quirky ways that the law has evolved over time. And one of the fun things that to me makes law fun is that, you know, looking back, you can see these things that we kind of take for granted now. Like obviously now you assume that if you have a cow and that cow gets out and tramples your neighbor's yard, you're going to be liable for that. But back, there was a time when back in, you know, the olden days, they were like, well, cows do what they want. Well, how am I supposed to know what my cow wants to do? Um, and they didn't really know. So anyways, fun, funny. Um, and you know, it seems like you could, get away with the perfect crime. If you like trained your animals to do something and then just throw your hands up and say, wow, those crazy squirrels just bit my ex-boyfriend all over. Um, 
just kidding. That actually really happened. And that lady got in trouble. Turns out that her intent shifted over to the animal's actions and replaced their intent. And so the courts treated it as though she herself had bitten him. I don't know if that's universal. I don't even know if that's true. There wasn't a case citation. That was one of the internet things that I read. I'd like to believe that it's true and that the squirrels were brought in and put on the witness stand and asked to testify. Um, I'd like to believe that that was true and that it also happened in Florida. But I don't know and I can't say for certain. All I can say is that that is what my dreams are made out of now. <laughs> Anyways, that's all the time I have for this week. I hope that you've enjoyed the show. I will be back later this week with another episode. Uh, if you liked it, please consider sharing or subscribing. And as always, the views represented in this podcast are mine alone and are not representative of BYU Law. Have a great week. Have a great week.